Hello, Heinekens and Paps Blue Ribbon and all the ships at sea, and welcome to A Very Good Year, the movie podcast where we invite a guest to pick their favorite year of movies and talk to us all about that year. I'm your host, Jason Bailey, and across the mic and across the country from me is my co-host, Michael Hull. And our guest today was uh, the film critic for the Boston Globe for two decades before departing that post to start up the must-read Substack newsletter, Ty Burr's Watchlist. He was also a senior writer for Entertainment Weekly from 1990 to 2002, a.k.a. that publication's glory years. Uh, And he has bylines at the New York Times, the Washington Post, Spin, the Boston Phoenix, and many more. His books include... Gods Like Us on Movie Stars and Modern Fame, and The Best Old Movies for Families, A Guide to Watching Together. Uh, He was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in Criticism, and he's a member of the Boston Society of Film Critics and the National Society of Film Critics. Folks, please welcome a true giant of film criticism and just a really nice guy, Mr. Ty Burr. Hi, Ty. Hi, Jason. Uh, that's the first time anybody's called me a giant, but I'll roll with it. <laughs> it is. You, I, you, you're you. a guy that I came up reading and admiring, and so getting to know you personally has, has been a real pleasure, and it's a thrill to have you on the show, because, you Thanks. know, you're a guy who knows what the fuck he's talking about. Um, <laughs> so let's start with the plug, because I really want to encourage our listeners and our Substack readers um, to check out the newsletter. What is sort of the uh, the guiding principle, if you will, of Tiber's watch list? Uh, the guiding principle is that after 20 years of reviewing movies for the Boston Globe, I had felt the ground beneath me shift mm. uh, and really sensed that we, by we, I mean you and me and all the other people writing about movies, we're writing about movies, but not in the way that people were watching them mm-hmm. anymore. And uh, as I started... The uh, started the the new the newsletter back in 2021. So year two, one of year two of the pandemic. Sure. Um, my feeling was that nobody was out there really saying, "Here's some good stuff, old or new, to find on all these channels, all these streaming um, services that you subscribe to." Uh, and I'd also been um, sitting on the globe for 20 years. It was time for a change. Sure. Uh, but I, it's been really um, rewarding. Pointing out, you know, every week, uh, you know, two, three times a week, I'll say, here's a movie from the 30s, 40s, from last week uh, in theaters, on demand, um, just knitting stuff together. And uh, there's, it's, it's been really, really neat to see the response to it because um, people are kind of hungry for something to watch after they've been watched The Bear um, and are hungry for something that's like 90 minutes, one and done. All right. Well, Ty, let's get down to brass tacks. What year did you choose to talk about on the show and why that year? Um, I chose 1986 uh, for a variety of reasons. I was alive. Good. Um, I was an adult. <laughs> All right. Uh, I was in my, um, I was 29. It was the year I turned 29. And um, it was a great year for movies. Mm. It was there was a lot of really interesting uh, indie movies, which, as we know them in the Sundance sense, were just beginning to come alive. Um, right. They there were sequels, but they were good uh, mm. and they were thoughtful and interesting, and people were taking Imagine chances. Um, yeah. And uh, I was living in New York at the time, and I. Um, and which is a, was and still is a great town for movies. Um, it was the last gasp of some of the, the, the great art, art houses and revival houses. Like I think the failure was still going and, mm, wow. uh, theater 80 St. Mark's. Um, it was the year I met my wife uh, and that will come up in the course of talking about one of the films. Great. Um, 
And, and uh, it, it was the year I, I, I had a kind of an interesting job. I think I told you about this uh, when we were hanging out at Sundance. I worked at HBO um, for about seven years in the 80s as a, as a film a, a film advisor, basically, evaluator. I was basically an in-house movie critic along with uh, five other people. And our job was to screen all the movies. If like um, a distributor had a slate of movies, they'd send in three quarter inch VHS tapes because those were the days. Of course. Um, and uh, I, we'd, I'd basically write a review for in-house use. Should you buy it? How should you promote it? How should you publicize wow. it? What time slot should you play it in? And because there are six of us and everybody kind of handled... Two, two other guys got all the new Hollywood stuff. You know, they were the, like the HBO guys. One of the guys, there's an um, old Broadway hoofer dude who like watched all the classics. Um, and because I was young and male um, and straight, um, Friday After Dark, Skinamax. I was the Skinamax guy, among many <laughs> other things. Among many other, my duties were, I was just, I picked the Skinamax movies for about five years, which has... Um, made me legendary for a coterie of people who came of age in those years. Yeah. <laughs> you were 13 and a guy in those years and your parents had Cinemax. You owe me a lot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't know if I want to hear about it. No, we should have, Mike, we should have piped Ernest into this episode so he could have sung the Emmanuel theme song for time. <laughs> all right. Well, I want to hear about all of these uh, terrific films that you saw in this year and in this fascinating job that that's a wonderful, it sounds like mixture almost between critic and programmer and curator, which I guess is kind of what you're doing now. That's what we were trying to do. So, but before we do that, Mike is going to walk us through some of the uh, exciting things that were happening in the world outside of the HBO and Cinemax screening room. Here's Mike with headlines. Looks like a couple of the uh, solid rocket boosters uh, blew away from the side of the shuttle in an explosion. very carefully at the situation obviously a major malfunction in january it was a defining moment for kids raised on space camp pamphlets the challenger shuttle exploded after takeoff killing all seven people on board i have to tell you that the first time in my life i've really and truly felt old was when um my oldest daughter got her american girl historical doll who was the <laughs> girl who McCall. was alive in 1986 and who was traumatized by the challenger explosion oh. like that was the moment when i was like wow i am truly a historical artifact now yeah. because i am the yeah, same age like, as this doll right. it's God. you and the depression era yeah, yeah. in 1980 er, in february 1986 pixar was founded that's cool all right right yes happy about that yes also in february the soviet union launched the mir space station great fun science hooray a lot of things happened in April, including the end of a 335-year war between England and the Netherlands over the Silly Islands, during which no shots were fired and apparently everyone forgot there was supposed to be a war on. Let's do all the wars like that. 
let's do let's do wait what, what that's got to be a gag detail though it wasn't really called the silly islands was it it's like, spelled s-c-i-l-l-y so i don't know how else to pronounce it maybe it's skilly or something but i just think cheerio we the, oh boy it's the silly about- islands wars during which no shots were fired and everyone forgot there was a war oh. on that's the kind of it's perfect actually it would be terribly uncivilized to fire any shots it's a silly island war <laughs> There has been a nuclear accident in the Soviet Union, and the Soviets have admitted that it happened. The Soviet version is this. One of the atomic reactors at the Chernobyl atomic power plant near the city of Kiev was damaged, and there is speculation in Moscow that people were injured and may have died. The Soviets may have been fairly quick to acknowledge the accident because evidence in the form of mild nuclear radiation had already reached beyond the Soviet borders to Scandinavia. But the big news in April was the meltdown at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant in Pripyat, Ukraine. At least 4,000 people died, and the area has been quarantined ever since. Yeah. Boo, Yeah, that was that. I mean, we were, you know, 10 and 11 at that time, but I, like, I remember Chernobyl. That was a huge, terrifying story. Ugh. I mean, it wasn't clear that the nuclear waste wasn't going to, like, blow all the way around the world to Kansas. Sure. Mm. Sure. You know. Why wouldn't it? Good evening, everybody. From New York to Long Beach, Hands Across America is being called a huge success tonight by organizers and participants alike. Last official count, more than 4.9 million people took part in the human chain for America's homeless, just short of the 5.5 million needed to complete the coast-to-coast line. In May was Hands Across America. Do you remember that? Five million people joined hands from New York to California to raise money to solve homelessness. So that's good. I mean, I think if anyone remotely younger than us knows about Hands Across America, it's only because of Jordan Peele's Us and what a major (laughs) plot, weird plot point it was in that movie. Um, And actually, when that movie came out, I wrote a whole piece for Vulture about Hands Across America. So I'll link that in the in the sub stack if you'd like to know more about that particular weirdness. I, I remember that happening, but for some reason, I just could not be bothered to go stand still for five minutes holding hands. With two people. I remember just being like, mm, I'm definitely not going to do that. I don't know why. No. I just, to this day, no. I don't remember why I had such a bad attitude about it, but yeah, I was yeah. not spending a Saturday on that. In June, <laughs> the Mindbender roller coaster derailed and killed three people, making roller coasters that much more fun for everyone. <laughs> right? It's the danger, right? Isn't that it the is. thing? It so, is indeed, Mike. Yes. <laughs> I, it's a weird silver lining, but I don't understand those things yeah. anyway. In August, some dumb coward asshole in Edmond, Oklahoma, went to his job and shot up the joint, killing 14 people. He worked at a mail center, so this is the unfortunate origin of the phrase going postal. Oh. 1986. Yep. In September was the first time The Economist magazine published the Big Mac Index. Does everybody know what the Big Mac Index is? This is my favorite economic index i don't i I don't you're gonna it's the price of a big mac because the big mac is one of the most ubiquitous items on the face of the earth so like even there's mcdonald's everywhere and even though the mcdonald's are sort of like localized to a certain extent you know um Mm -hmm. they they have the big mac like it's known for the big mac so the price of a big mac in different countries around the world is actually a really great economic indicator to understand the value of different currencies against each other Okay, it's well, way we it's know. way it's way more interesting than it should be if you find the right one article about it, and that's all you need to right. know. Right there, we go. Okay. In October, the very innocuously named News Corporation finalized its purchase of the Metro Media Group and founded. This is like a fucking comic book origin story. Fox News. 
Boo. News Corporation becomes Sean Hannity. You know how that works? All right. In November, Oliver North started shedding receipts from the Iran-Contra affair, but no one would hear about it for a few more months. Boo. But that was already happening in 86, yeah. 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 Uh, also in November, ever tuned into the temperature of the times, the Walt Disney Company re-released Song of the South for the fifth and final time. Has everybody seen Song of the South? <laughs> what? Yeah. Yes. What? <laughs> 86 cut or uncut oh uncut i mean the movie this is oh. song of the south in theaters yes did it play in the south i don't recall it playing in, in new york I maybe i wasn't paying attention maybe it did the this the the second run uh circuit there yeah holy crap Finally, in December, Michael Griffith was killed in Howard Beach, Queens, after he and two friends were chased from a pizza shop because a bunch of racist cunts didn't want black people in their neighborhood. Rest in peace, Michael Griffith. A shit story. Yeah. Sorry to end the year on yeah. it. No, no, you know, we, we, we can connect. Um, you know, one of this was one of the inciting incidents uh, for Spike Lee's writing of Do the Right Thing. Uh, Michael Griffith That's is correct. name-checked in that film. Uh, good first episode of Fun City Cinema on the origins of of Do the Right Thing. Uh, apologies for the plug. Uh, Mike, you were saying. <laughs> Other notable but less tragic deaths. Donna Reed, Willard Van Dyke, mm-hmm. L. Ron Hubbard went to go sit at the feet of Zunu, Zinu or whatever. <laughs> uh, computer programmer Ida Rhodes, Dune series author Frank Herbert, actor Paul Stewart, mm-hmm. Georgia O'Keefe, James Cagney. Simone de Beauvoir, Jean Genet, Otto Preminger, Tenzing Norgay, Sterling Hayden. God damn, this is a hard list. Jazz great Benny Goodman, American Satan Roy Cohn. Bye. Big round of applause. Big round of applause for for the the angel of death for taking Roy Cohn, everybody. (laughs) Bye, bitch. Cliff Burton from Metallica, Cary Grant, Desi Arnaz, and finally, friend of the show, Andre Tarkovsky. Rest in power, because I don't think he ever knew peace. 1986 was a big year for sports, huh? If you say so. <laughs> the Chicago Bears beat the tight pants off the New England Patriots to win Super Bowl Twenty. We're not here to cause no trouble. We're just here to do the Super Bowl shuffle. That's right. <laughs> See, I, I pretended to like football, and it was in 1986. Can you believe this ball game at Shea? at second base with two out, three and two to Mookie Wilson. Little roller up along first, behind the bag, it gets through Buckner, here comes Knight and the Mets win it! The Mets beat the Red Sox to win the World Series and Mets fans still won't shut the fuck up about it. Okay, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm from Boston. I was in the... The ball going through Buckner's leg is a formative, formative <laughs> moment of my life. I say I like 1986. This is the one night I don't like. The asterisk to that. <laughs> the asshole of the year. Oh, my God. I was in a, I was, if I can tell a story, I was in an apartment in yep. New York City with, watching the game with all of my friends who were Mets fans. Of course. And if you remember, it was down to one out one out and they're all like you've won it you've won it you finally won it after a hundred zillion years you guys have the series and i was like no we can lose this still in ways you cannot begin to imagine and then um uh the manager 
McNamara. Um, uh-huh. they, we love him so much in Boston. We named a town after him, Marblehead. Um, kept throwing in relief pitchers, and uh, it got. And then the ball went through Buckner's legs, and the tying run scored. And everybody in the room turned and looked at me like I was <laughs> Cassandra. <laughs> like I was, and like they took all the knives away from me. Oh. It was a bad night. It was oh a bad, bad God. night. That's great. That is great. <laughs> Okay, but if you were a Boston person, right? Larry Bird was clowning motherfuckers in his short shorts all the way to the ring in 86. That is true. There you we go. We will accept that. You got, right, a little <laughs> consolation prize, right? There a you little go. Con- yeah, you know, but we came so close. <laughs> so close. In November, Mike Tyson knocked out Trevor Burbick to become the youngest heavyweight champion ever at 20 years and four months old. Woo! That guy was unstoppable, and you can watch all those fights on YouTube. It'll take you less than an hour to watch and beat the shit out of, like, 20 people and and get that first belt. He was not – we've discussed this before in the sports section. He was not about giving the pay-per-viewers the bang for their buck. Nope. He was the best. Greg LeMond became the first ever winner of the Tour de France uh, from the U.S., so that was very exciting. And finally, not only was there a World Cup in 1986, it was one of the best uh, World Cups ever. Argentina okay. beat West Germany 3-2 to in the final. They were led through the cup by Diego Maradona, one of the best and most exciting players in the history of the game. This World Cup included both the hand of God goal and the goal of the century, both by Maradona, both in the same game, and it might be responsible for certain little boys and girls who still love the game. Shout out to Diego Maradona and the 1986 World Cup. It doesn't get any better than that. That is sports, and that is headlines. Thank you, Mike. Thank you so much for, uh, for the headlines and for your passion. Ty, you ready to do a top five? I think I am. All right, so we talked before the show, and we decided that we're going to keep it very simple, and this is going to be an alphabetical top five, which would mean that we will start with the A's and tie what is the first film on your list for 86. It is an A, and it is uh, Aliens. You're going out there to destroy them. That's the plan. All right, I'm in. The first time she survived the most terrifying creature in the universe, she thought the nightmare was over. Something under the floor. It hadn't even begun. Coming straight for us. That's inside the room. Sigourney Weaver, Aliens, the new movie. This time, it's war rated R. Now singular. Yes. But yes <laughs> plural s with the uh with so, the cash so, uh so cash many plural. through it <laughs> so many plurals so I, I i like this movie better than the first one i will be the person i will say that i will give the first one its props mm-hmm, for mm-hmm. being a great movie i think this is one of the greatest action movies ever made and that i think is a key yeah. distinction because really the that may have been Cameron's genius was that he's that he may have said I'm not a horror filmmaker I'm not going to top how scary the first one was and I may not even be able to top the sci-fi of the first one but what if we turn this into like a forearm bruising action movie and that was really genius non-stop right right it was um and the best part about it is in 1986 and I think actually what's nice about all five um movies on my list is that they 
all came out of nowhere mm. um, and just sandbagged you. Mm. Um, nobody, I, even in 1986, you knew something with a two at the end and aliens basically was alien too. Um, you know, you were going to get used goods. You knew you were going to get, <laughs> you know, um, something that had been on the, on the stove for a bit long, too long. Sure. Um, so that when you, uh, and you know, I, I can I will have an argument till the end of time. You know, what are the what are the greatest sequels? What's the best number two movie? Most people would say Godfather two, um, and I, I, yeah, fine, I'm down with that. But I, I will actually go to the mat for Aliens. Um, wow, because I think it takes this, the premise um, and ups it and amps it. And you could argue that, that Godfather two does the same. <laughs> the original. Um, maybe if they put an alien in Godfather, there you go. <laughs> um, Just many Godfathers. But, um, like at some at some point in when you're watching aliens for the first time and you had to have seen it in a packed Times Square theater in 1986 with just people climbing the walls um you realize you are in the grip of a an incredibly well-made movie um and I you know people coming to this from um I, I should know this, but Terminator was was before this yeah right like two years yeah 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 so you know Cameron already you know, his name was out there. Um, but even for people who didn't know that, you just had the sense that you were at in the hands of a mad genius. Yeah. Somebody who really knew how to tell a good story, but keep you in the grip of the action and get all the beats right. Yeah. Um, without, you know. Yeah. No, with, and I, without, without, you know, without, a, without, you know, without a script doctor in there. Just, I mean, this movie is where all those script doctor courses come from. Um, just in terms of, you know, getting the beats, catching you off off guard with this one, but nailing you with this one. Um, it's just good, tight screenwriting um, and good, tight filmmaking and editing and all up and down the line. Yeah, no, I mean, I think the thing that's important to remember, and, and we we tend to forget it because he would go on to you know, marshal some of the most expensive movies ever made was that Terminator mm-hmm. was a very low budget movie. It was like, right. he, it you know, and he had come from like literally a Roger Corman background. So with Aliens, we're seeing the first time where he really had like a lot of resources at his disposal, where he had the backing of a major studio and he had a big budget and he had a tentpole. And, and to see then that he was capable of, of not only replicating sort of the, the, the wizardry um, in terms of tension and suspense and all the cool things that Terminator does, but then to make just a big, giant fucking blockbuster that is this entertaining is, I think, right. really something. Right. Yeah. And and um, not only a, a big fucking blockbuster that's entertaining, but one that has, and you, you can cue the strings here, that has a heart. Yes. That has a heart. <laughs> um, no, it does. I mean, it's about matriarchy, for fuck's sake. Yeah. Um, you know, and... and Again, to be in a theater on opening weekend in Times Square <laughs> in 1986 when Ripley comes out with, you know, know in, in the, uh, know the robo frame. Yes. Get away from her, you bitch. Oh, my God. The the entire place lost yeah. its collective mind. Yeah. Um, I've rarely have I heard an audience reaction like that. Just totally pumped beyond belief yeah um but but at that point you're so invested in this character over two films yeah um and the addition of this little girl that she's protecting um 
it doesn't go overboard with it. It it just gives it, it gives the movie an emotional core that honestly the biggest uh, box office success of 1986, um, which is also arguably a very good action movie, um, and I'm talking about Top Gun, mm-hmm. does not have a heart. Um, does is you know emotionally rather fraudulent. Yes. Um, uh, you know, Aliens moves me. Yeah. Moves me, man. Yes. Well said. Well said. All right. So then, what uh, alphabetically would be our number two? Best motion picture for 1986, Ty. Okay, this, this again, a movie that came out of nowhere. Yeah. Uh, not really, if you knew its filmmaker. Um, and that's Blue Velvet. She wore blue. blue Velvet is a masterpiece, a visionary story of sexual awakening. David Thompson, California Magazine. It will be attacked, argued about, and cherished for years to come. David Anson, Newsweek. Brilliant and unsettling, this is the work of an all-American visionary and a master film stylist, Stephen Schiff, Vanity Fair. Blue Velvet. Rated R. The uh, the much-awaited follow-up to Dune from David Lynch and yes, producer exactly. Dino <laughs> Exactly. Um, you know... Was it was it the, the film that he made after Dune? He was, yeah. This was, yeah. Dune was for De Laurentiis in like '84. God. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, Eraserhead, Elephant Man, Dune, and Blue Velvet. So, Blue Velvet, uh, he, after you know, he makes Eraserhead, which just turns everybody's neck in 360 yep. degrees. Um, <laughs> the Elephant Man is like, oh, he can make a illegitimate movie. Yep. Surprise. Yep. Uh, Dune is like, oh. He can't make a blockbuster. Um, <laughs> Correct. You know, uh, you know, it, it it has its pleasures. I love it as kind of an anti movie. Yes, an anti blockbuster. Agreed. But, um, uh, but Blue Velvet is the first work of his where his experimental side comes together with his narrative side in a way that is. Um, I mean, Eraserhead is essentially an avant garde yeah. film. Blue Velvet has avant garde elements many of them and you could argue that you know it's it's spine is is avant-garde um but within the service of a supposedly conventional narrative with supposedly conventional movie stars which is why i think it freaked so many people out mm. um the moment you know like I, I talk about the moment in aliens where when ripley comes out in the robo frame the moment in i remember in blue velvet where the audience just you could feel them recoil almost is the moment where Isabella Rossellini staggers out from the shadows naked um dazed something horrible has happened to her if you remember the the, the scene um it's um Colin McLaughlin and I think Laura Dern talking in the foreground at yeah. night in front of this house and you see Rossellini emerge before you even really register what is going on there yeah. so she's on the in the frame for like almost five seconds, 10 seconds before you realize, oh my God, this is this, you know, this woman's naked days, something horrible has happened. Um, And you could hear that in the theater. You could hear this kind of moan of like uh, realization Mm. that it it kind of broke people's brains in terms of, in in a way that, in a very different way that um, Marion Crane getting killed off in the middle of Psycho sure. just completely broke people's brains. They didn't know how to process it. Sure. People didn't know how to process that moment 
um, in Blue Velvet. Uh, it was shocking in a, in a very real way. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, and I think it's also maybe difficult to overstate this film's influence on just sort of the way we think about suburban small town Americana that like it's hard to 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 express to anyone who's watched any popular culture in the last 20 years that there was a time that this was a subversive idea that like that yeah. under the surface of you know the white picket fence was a world that was you know dark and depraved and terrifying and all these sorts of things but it it really was not yet a cliche and the way that he crafts that is it's it's unnerving in ways that it's hard to even pinpoint um right. exactly right. what he's discombobulating doing. um i always think of that the final image uh it's not really a spoiler is it's the the, the bird mm -hmm. the mechanical bird on the mm -hmm. and you know are is that are we supposed to notice that it's a mechanical bird are we supposed mm -hmm. to believe it's real is it is it a you know a, a, is it a cyborg bird is that what suburbia is i mean <laughs> Um, and then let's talk about Dennis Hopper. Yeah. Um, yeah. Who restarted his career uh, by playing the most evil man in the history of movies. Mm -hmm. um, um, that's actually a really good contest. Who, who's who's in the brackets for most <laughs> evil man in the history of movies? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, Robert Mitchum and Night of the Hunter. I mean, you could you could come up with a whole list, but Frank Booth is definitely definitely in there. And when again, yeah. when he pulls out that mask and starts um, inhaling whatever the hell it is. You don't know what it is. <laughs> mm -mm. Again, in a full theater, people are just freaking out, just yeah. going, what is this movie doing to me? Yeah. Um, so you, and this was before Twin Peaks, which took that idea of exactly small town America with an almost Lovecraftian level of evil running beneath it. Um, but, but these innocents, trying to come to terms with it and the seduction of these innocents. Um, and again, the, another key scene in Blue Velvet is Jeffrey, Kyle MacLachlan's character, in the closet yeah. watching, uh, you know, uh, Frank and Isabella Rossellini's character um, just go into their s and um, That's just a primal, that's just Freudian primal scene of cinema. Um, yes, and also a Freudian primal scene about cinema and maybe like correct. the most autobiographical scene that David Lynch has ever put in one of his movies is, you know, the idea of yeah. being the young man hiding, watching people f do what they do, do horrible in private, things. do horrible things right. to each other in private. Um, mm -hmm. And it's also performative for each other. And yeah, uh, it's a, it's, it's a thick, rich text, um, but also just like a great movie. So Ty, what is the number three movie on your 1986 list? That would be Michael Mann's Manhunter. Somewhere between dreams and reality lies the key to a killer's identity. You ought to know how he's choosing them, don't you? Hunting in that dangerous place is FBI agent Will Graham. What is it you think you're becoming? The closer he gets to the killer, the more deadly the dreams become. Manhunter. Starts Friday at a theater near you. Check local listings. The the first Hannibal Lecter movie. Yes. Uh, yes although indeed. he's not the the star of it or the the super villain of it. Although he is, but he's a sort <laughs> of supporting villain. He's there. He's the he's the consultant. He's the, he's the serial the serial psychopathic consultant. Yes. Um, 
as I guess he is in, in Silence of the Lambs, but he doesn't take center stage so much in Manhunter. Um, really, who takes uh, center stage is William Peterson's detective. Um, as he and, and the mystery, the the solving of the clues, the putting together of the clues is which I think is is true in in the in the original novel. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of the the, uh, the 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 driver of the story is how you it's it's less a thriller, which Silence of the Lambs most certainly is, sure. than it is a puzzle piece, and it's also a psychological. And to me, this is the part of the film that's that's not least convincing, but least important um, that well, William Peterson's detective character by studying these serial killers is starting to become like them himself. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't really buy that. Um, and that may be due to William Peterson. I don't know. I don't, I think he's a good actor. I don't find him hugely compelling right. as a, you know, as a figure in the movie, but the mystery, how they piece together the pieces of mm-hmm. the, the William Dollarhide uh, killer. It's absolutely fascinating. And the, when the reveal of, of the, the villain is made um, with um, Tom Noonan, yeah. it's really one of the more frightening moments in 80s cinema. Yeah, I agree. No, I mean, I think what what's really interesting because you know, for for listeners who may not know the the sort of the full background here, this was the first novel that that uh, Lecter was in, and then Michael yep. Mann made this movie where Lecter, as Ty mentioned, is a supporting character, played in this film uh, of interest to to recent audiences yep. by Succession star Brian Cox, who is who is very yes. chilling. Um, in but in a, a kind of a different, uh, almost more physically imposing way than Anthony Hopkins right. was for my money. But I what happened? This was the first time I'd ever seen him in a movie. Yeah, I think it, it, that would scan. Yeah. Um, yeah. But then what happened was, you know, after Silence of the Lambs, this movie came out and was not a, a tremendous uh, financial success. It was not very right. widely seen. Um, and then when the, the when the the Silence of the Lambs adaptation came around, they sort of started with a clean slate in terms of casting and 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 uh, and production team and all that sort of thing. But then a lot of us who were obsessed with Silence of the Lambs went back and watched Manhunter, and saw this this very different sort of take on on similar material and on the character. And then now, of course, Michael Mann has become this whole you know sort of style upon himself. So yeah, I think right. you're right. I think, and I, I couldn't put my finger on it. I, when I rewatched it for the show, it was the first time I'd seen it in probably 20 years. What what it what does make this different, and certainly makes it better than the immediately forgettable Brett Ratner helmed remake, right. uh, Red Dragon, a few years after Science of the Lambs, was um, is that it's a procedural. Is that like Michael Mann yeah. is sort of unparalleled in his ability to to craft compelling procedurals. And that is the stuff in this film that is uh, sort of the most gripping and the most stylish. Right. That and the scenes between uh, Tom Noonan and Joan Allen. Yes. As the mm-hmm. his blind, the, the blind woman he takes out for a date and then brings home. Oh, my God. Yeah. This is a movie I, I remember I did not see in the theaters, but because I was working for HBO Cinemax, um, this was one of those movies that, like The Terminator, took off on cable. Mm. Um, and we, we couldn't play it enough. Wow. Um, you know, Interesting. And I, I would see the, 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 you know, the Nielsen numbers come in and it would just get an audience no matter when you put it on, you know, two in the morning, four in the morning, three wow. in the afternoon. Um, so you knew something was, I mean, I remember seeing these, it was like, I got to watch this movie. What, what's going <laughs> on? Here? Uh, 
And, uh, and it, again, it's, you know, it's, it's not a grand guignol show like silence of the lambs. And I think people going back to it, going to it after that movie, sure. expecting more, you know, right. you know, they're not going to get that. They're going right. to get, um, I don't know if I did that sound effect that was, quite right. No, it, was, it came through loud and clear. Now. Yeah. Now the, the old fava beans, uh, of course, um, sound effect. Um, it's, it is again, a little more deadpan, a little more procedural, not quite, you know, Sergeant Friday, but uh, definitely sort of clipped. Mm-hmm. Um, and the horror really is in how completely demented yeah. its main character, its main villain is. Yeah. Um, he is, there's really no explaining him. He is just a psychopath. All right, Tybar, what is the number four alphabetically movie on your 1986 list? We're moving into the late uh, latter part of the alphabet here. And my number four movie is She's Gotta Have It, the first feature film by one Spike Lee. Nola was something special. She had this amazing effect on men. Please, baby, please, baby, please, baby, 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 please. Good night. Good night. Wait, 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 wait. Is Jamie there? I was the best thing that ever happened to Nola, darling. Ask her, she'll tell you that herself. Why, well, she worshipped me. I've never seen anybody who like to look at themselves more than you do. Don't you ever get tired? Never happened, baby. <laughs> stop, stop. Nola, stop. Stop. Nola knew what she wanted. And she's got to have it. Uh, and a movie that, again, came out of nowhere. Yeah. Unless you had been paying attention. You'd been, you know, scoping out all the NYU film school grads. <laughs> or had seen... Um, his his short film, um, uh, Joe's Bedside Barbershop, we cut heads, which is which, very uh, good. Did that win an Oscar? It won like um, a Student Academy Award. Yes, right. Yes, right. Uh, great little film. I don't know if it's available. It should be. Uh, you can probably find you can it somewhere you can online. find it in some corners of the internet. It's out yep. there. So, w- when did you sort of first hear about this movie and 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 seek it out as a as a New Yorker in 1986? As a um. This was a classic. I mean, it, it got, you know, a great New York Times review right out of the gate. Um, and I, you know, it was one of those things where I read it uh, and it was like, oh, I got to I got to see, see this. And people were already talking about it. People mm. were talking about it. At a, I forget who at HBO in my little corner had seen it already. But this was this is this is this guy's got the real stuff. Um, and it was my first date with my future wife. Hey, we went to see it at the Lincoln Plaza Cinema. Right oh off yeah, Columbus Circle. Oh yeah, um, know it well. And um, it wasn't the test film, uh, the movie that you you know you, you when you when you realize you're serious about sure. someone and you you sit them down to watch something mm-hmm. to uh, you know and if they don't like it there's going to be right uh, there's going to be a problem. What, what was the test movie. film, Ty? Pee-wee's Big Adventure. (laughs) If she didn't laugh at that, it was, I don't know where it was going to go. And luckily she did. And here we are two kids and 30, 35 years later. Um, uh, But uh, I could see she's got to have it being a potentially fraught first date film. How did the, how did that go? Um, You know, it was actually perfect because it's light, but it deals with some pretty heavy shit. Yeah. Um, you can argue with it and we did argue with it um and each other in very engaged not angry ways yeah. um it was clear it was exciting yeah. because the energy of it um and of course spike is in it um and is playing great Mars, in it. yeah blackman yeah. is great in it yeah. and everybody comes out of that movie going please baby please baby please baby please <laughs> 
Um, and I remember he had, he had, and the, I can't remember if it was the trailer or mm-hmm. it was even a TV ad where he just comes on and he's in your face saying, come see this movie. Come yeah. see my movie. Yeah. Um, selling tube socks. Kicking. He's out on the street right. selling, selling tube, tube, socks. Selling tube socks and telling you to come see She's Gotta Have It. Yeah. Tube socks, tube socks, tweet fight out. Tweet fight out. Tweet fight out. Hi, I'm Spike Lee. When I'm not directing, I do this. It pays the rent, puts food on the table, butter on my whole wheat bread. Anyway, I had this new comedy coming out. It's a very funny film. She's got to have it. Check this out. And and it was just like somebody has arrived. Somebody has arrived who's going to be giving us really interesting stuff for who knows how long. And here it is, yeah. 2023. He's still giving us stuff, not as much as he could be. Um, I wish more people would bankroll his movies. Yep. Uh, I wish. I wonder if at the end of the day, we're going to look at his documentaries and say that was the greatest stuff he did. Um, although some of his movies are damn great too. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that was that. It, you know, it's it's. I don't know if it's a great movie. I think it's a really, really, really good first movie. Yeah. And the the arrival was the event. Yeah. Yes. Yes, indeed. All right. That brings us to the fifth and final alphabetical 1986 film. Another, for my money, at least at the beginning, really great New York movie. Uh, Ty, what's what's the fifth movie on your list? That is Jonathan Demme's Something Wild, uh, a movie that is very, very dear to my heart. Yeah. Charlie's a mild-mannered executive who's never been far from home. Wait, 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 where where are we going? Now Lulu's taking him all the way. If you were my mother and I brought this guy home as my husband, what would you think? I'd get rid of those handcuffs if I were you. From mild. Oh, my gosh. To wild. You gotta fight for a woman like this. Melanie Griffin, Jeff Daniels. Something wild. Now playing at a theater near you. Consult local listings. Just for many reasons. Melanie Griffith, when she was fresh. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Jeff Daniels, when, you know, in one of his best, he's, he's got two claims to movie fame. This and Gettysburg, if you ask me. <laughs> really? Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah, he's great in Gettysburg. I believe him. Yeah. Um, uh, and... And then Ray Liotta, um, coming on also like, in the brackets, coming on like a fucking stick of dynamite in this movie. Oh my like, god! Holy also shit! Also in the brackets for most evil man yeah. in the history of movies. Yeah. Um, and there is that moment. So for people who haven't seen the film, and you must see the film. Yeah, yeah. And I would say this is actually one of the ones that feels still most rooted in the '80s, but in all the best ways. Definitely. On um, the soundtrack, I remember I immediately ran out and got the soundtrack on vinyl. Yeah. A lot of people did. I still. I still have it. I'm going to get up and look for it in just a second. I think I still have it. Um, and it's about a straight-laced Wall Street type of dude, insurance salesman, I think, who meets a, oh my God, the original Manic Pixie Dream Girl. Yeah. Not the original. Catherine Hepburn and Bring Up Baby is the original <laughs> Manic Pixie Dream, Dream Girl. But um, but the 80s, ver- the best 80s version. In the and Louise Brooks haircut. Like, you in cannot the leave Brooks that haircut. detail out. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Oh, well, this is made by a man who knows and loves his film history. Yes. Um, and, and knows and loves his music. Yeah. Uh, and there's, I, this is a man who in the prom scene has the feelies playing the prom <laughs> backup reunion band. And if you know the feelies, a yeah. great New Jersey band. Yeah. Um, a friend of mine says that he knew he was going to marry the woman he went to see that movie with when she, 
recognized the 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 prom band that it was the feelings <laughs> like okay that's that's who i'm married there we go um but there's that moment in the prom when uh audrey Melanie Griffith's character and Jeff Daniels' character, whose name escapes me at the moment, um, are dancing and they're, and they're finally having a, a romantic moment. He's been freaking out with the things that she's been doing, but he's starting to let his guard down and they're having this moment. And then, and it's cued perfectly to this one feely song that is very lovely and melancholy and lyrical and then starts, hits a chord that all of a sudden bottoms out into something really kind of ominous. Mm-hmm. And right at that moment, Ray Liotta and uh, Margaret Collin, who's his date, come around the corner and he says, hey, baby. Mm-hmm. And the movie literally pivots, just changes from the sunny screwball comedy to a thriller. Yeah. Literally in that nanosecond. It's yeah. one of the most remarkable moments in a movie I've ever seen. Yeah. Well, and, you know, to to, to be a director who can navigate that turn and sustain it the way Demi does. Like, uh, sort of astonishing. Yeah. All right, Ty, thank you for that excellent top five. And now let's find out what films were winning trophies and making money. Here's awards and box office. Sell out with me. Oh, yeah. Sell out with me tonight. The record company's only kidding. Man, lots of money. You should have been programming the Oscars. Your list is better than theirs. You know what? Uh, <laughs> His list is better than theirs, but this is a better than average Oscar list as well. These are all pretty, pretty solid in my Fair, opinion. You're right. You're right. This is not this is not the best year to pick on them. Uh, uh, <laughs> best picture and best director to Oliver Stone for Platoon. Pretty good movie. Ty, where do you I mean? Pretty good. Where movie. you land on Platoon, Ty? Uh, I, I, I don't know. If, I, I think it's a good movie. Yeah. I think it was of its time. It absolutely was of its time. Um, it was also, I think, the second best movie Oliver Stone made that year. Because <laughs> <laughs> he also made a scrappy little thing called um, uh, Salvador, which yeah. is undoubtedly the, the best thing James Wood has ever done in his yeah. sorry little life. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what else you got, Mike? Best actor to Paul Newman for The Color of Money. See, Color of Money, uh, which I know is considered a lesser Scorsese, but was one of my Scorsese entry points. So I will always have yeah. bad love for Color of Money. And it's a good movie. Newman um, is fantastic in it. Yeah, and and that was one like you know Pacino with sure. uh with um with the the, the blind movie um, Son of know, a Woman. Thank you. Uh, where it was like, okay, this is the one we're going to give it to him for because we haven't given it yep. to him yet, and that's fine. Um, he still should have won for the verdict, but that's moved. Agreed. It's only Agreed. a lesser if you're the guy that made Taxi Driver and fucking Goodfellas. I mean, I agree. <laughs> I agree. It's wild that that's on the like on the low yeah. end of your list. I know. Best actress to Marley Matlin for Children of a Lesser God. Good film. Mm-hmm. Good performance. Yep. Best supporting actor to Michael Caine. Best supporting actress to Diane Weist, and best original screenplay to Woody Allen for Hannah and Her Sisters. I really, yes. I like, I love Hannah and her sisters. It's, it's, I do too. it's such a well, and that screenplay award, like that is legit. That is a really beautifully constructed ensemble screenplay. Uh, every performance in it is good. And you know, it's Diane Weist, especially uh, Diane Weist uh, is heartbreaking in that movie. She really um, is. And I am, I am, I am a generally a Woody Allen naysayer. Mm. Um, and I have been, you know, there are people up here that will shoot me in Whole Foods for some of the things <laughs> I've written about Woody Allen. Um, but uh, this is, a, I, I do believe the man has a, a handful of legitimate 
masterpieces to his credit and this is absolutely one of them and probably close to the top yeah no i would agree and would also say that i think this sort of this entire run we've talked about it before this this sort of mid 80s run from about mm-hmm. zelig to radio days is pretty fucking hard to hard to argue with I this would is say. I, zelig there, is right? probably my favorite woody allen movie period yeah 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 what's that mike isn't Cairo? Isn't Purple Rose of Cairo in that? Sure is. Sure mm-hmm. is. Yep. yep. Right in the middle That's of that. Great movie, bro. Yeah. Broadway, Danny Rose. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, there's a lot of good stuff there. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Best adapted screenplay to Ruth Prower Jabvala for A Room with a View. Uh, where do you land on A Room with a View, Ty? Um, I think it's a perfectly fine film. Um, I have no strong feelings of it one way or another. It's been a while since I've seen it. Um. This is uh, uh, an early Daniel Day-Lewis performance. It sure uh, is. Film, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and yes, and he plays this dithery character that's quite marvelous. And I think it was one of the first times between that and um, My Beautiful Laundrette. Um, was it My Beautiful Laundrette? Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. No. Well, yeah. That people were like, who's this guy? Who is this fucking um, guy? Yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and for me, Room of the View was kind of like, setting up the table for the the ect merchant ivory movie which is howard's End, of course um which you know cleans cleans up in the early 90s this is a good one best original score to herbie hancock for round midnight hell yeah boy i like round midnight holy yeah. shit yeah, that's that good. is a good good movie yeah yep. yeah i just saw herbie at the, uh, the uh at the jazz festival down in um uh you know down in rhode island yeah um, and uh, he's he's doing he's doing great stuff. Still, Still getting it done. Good for good for Herbie. Yep, absolutely. Always been a favorite. All right. What were some other big award winners this year, Mike? BAFTA for best actor and Golden Globe for best actor in a drama to Bob Hoskins for Mona Lisa. Mona Lisa. Mm. Boy, the rips. the transfer oh. he had to make to play Mona. Something else. <laughs> <laughs> God damn it, Mike. Sorry. Um, I saw I saw this one for the first time about this was an early lockdown movie for me. It was the first time I'd seen that. In one really? afternoon, I saw Mona Lisa and The Long Good Friday for the first time. Oh and man, he's so good in both those movies. Holy shit. Like so good, so uh such a yin and yang to those performances. Um, I don't think he gets the kind of credit he should get for the work he was doing in this period. Yeah. Yeah. Um and uh it's one of the it's a reminder also that michael kane can play an absolute shit yes um yes you know <laughs> and especially the same the same year that he's playing such a delightful fellow in hannah and her sisters yeah exactly yeah right palm door can and the BAFTA for, bafta for best supporting actor to ray mcnally and the golden globe for best screenplay to robert bolt and the best score to and ennio morricone for the mission the mission is one that I still have yet to make my way to tie. It just looks like so much work. Uh, what were your it thoughts is, on the mission? So many it laurels is, on that. It movie, is a bit Jason. of work. You should see it. You should see it on a big screen. Right. Um, I haven't seen, I, 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 again, I haven't seen this movie since the, it came out. Um, and I remember feeling dutif- dutifully impressed is the word that I would use for that. And, and really actually the score that that is an absolutely well-deserved award. It's one of Morricone's yeah. 
I mean, you know, where do you start with Morricone? But it's yeah. a great score. Yeah, um, agreed. And you know, honestly, I don't remember much beyond it. The uh, you know, the and the, the famous scene of the cross going over yep. the falls. Yep, um, that's all I know and, about it. You know, is that shot? Is that like shot is in. That shot is in so right. many montages and so many documentaries. That's all well, I know. Wait, it's a movie that's about a guy going about over. It. If that's all you know about it, you've never seen it. That's all he remembers of it, and he has seen it. Then I feel like you've seen it. You've basically seen it. Let's put it this way: you you should see it, and I should see it again someday. Someday. <laughs> Golden Globe for Best Actor Comedy Musical went to Paul Hogan for Crocodile Dundee. Boy, people yes, liked that Crocodile sure Dundee movie. They loved that. Man. So Top Gun made uh, 177 million U.S. Crocodile Dundee made 175 million yeah. U.S. That's kind of astounding for an Australian comedy. Australian about a dude character comedy. Yeah, Jason, that's about not a, a knife. This is a knife. knife. <laughs> there yeah. you go. People this love the knife. People love the knife. They love People that. Love yeah. The knife. Yeah. I All right. Don't know. Looks it's... like we're on to the top yeah. ten. Looks like we're on to the box office. <laughs> Number ten. Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Love that movie. Oh, I'm sorry. I hate that. I <laughs> That's hate fine. That. You were a working, thinking adult when that movie came out. I was we a were child. I think that's... No, no, you know what? You know? I hated that kid. I hated that kid in grammar school. I hated him in high school. And I, I you know, I totally related to Cameron. You know? Yeah. Completely yeah. related to Cameron. Oh, yeah. No, if you're, if, you're, if you're watching from the Cameron character's perspective, that movie's fucking terrible. Yeah. <laughs> that movie's yeah, just one long nightmare. He's the worst best friend you'll ever have. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Number nine, Ruthless People. God damn, that's a funny movie. Ruthless people I is funny see that as again. hell. Oh, yeah. yeah. Number eight, The Golden Child. Uh, back when Eddie and anything would make money, and The Golden Child sort of proves that. Never saw it. It's, it's, Never saw it's it? It's quite mid, it. as the kids say these days. It's very mid. Number seven, Aliens. Uh, Excellent. Yes. Yep. Excellent. Good. Number six, Sigourney back Weaver, to I'm sorry, I, Sigourney Weaver nominated for an Oscar for Best Actress for Aliens, and that is just a fun fact that I wanted to throw in here. Oscar nominated for her work as Ripley in Aliens. Sorry. Go as ahead. well she should That's have. right. Well deserved. Yeah, that's beautiful. Number six, Back to School. I'm pretty sure Rodney was nominated for uh, Best Supporting. No? <laughs> no, he was, but he was uh, up for the Olympic trials for the Triple Lindy, if memory <laughs> right. serves. So, yeah. Um, I think there he was doing the Iditarod that last <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I unapologetically love Back to School, but it's very much like a movie I saw as a kid when it came out in theaters and watched the shit out of on hbo and um, yeah yeah it's a great it is, it is no it is no caddyshack but, but it is pretty damn funny it it's, is the yeah. it is the like the argument for rodney dangerfield was the wc fields of the 80s like you could have yeah, seen you could have seen fields in that movie if he had been making movies in the 80s oh man i had never thought of that but that's actually a very good point hey thank you number five star trek four the voyage home that's the funny that's one the one is this the one with the whales? Yeah. That's the one with the whales. That's the okay. one with the whales. Yeah, it's a good one. Okay. Number four, The Karate Kid Part 2. Yeah. I really Again, love the first Karate I, Kid, but Karate Kid 2 is... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I If I saw it, I have no memory. It's from, <laughs> from my brain pan. I feel go. like that really shouldn't be number four on the list because like half of that movie's money actually belongs to the first movie. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like people were going to yep. see the... Right? Yeah. Okay. Anyway. Yep. Number three, Platoon, 138 million domestic. This guy's still making movies off that off that number. 
Can you imagine yep. uh, that movie, uh, uh, you know, an, an, an intense character-driven Vietnam War movie drama, A, coming out in theaters now, but B, earning $138 million in 2023 money? It's insane. No, 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 yeah. no, no. But it was a Vietnam War movie we yep. needed. There you go. Um, you know, and, and that's what all the, you know, all the op-ed columns were all about. I mean, this is like purely personal anecdote and so not scientifically relevant necessarily. But there were a a lot more Vietnam vets still alive in 1986 yep. than there is now mm. from True. personal observation in my own family sure. and amongst family sure. contact and friends. Right. And I mean, I remember conversations amongst people who were there about which movies got things more right and less. You know, like mm. I remember those debates actively happening sure. at that sure. time, you know, and I feel like that's one of those things that that. You know, I mean, we're not sort of debating like, you know, what is the right way to tell the fate of Wakanda? You know right. what I mean? Like everybody's <laughs> just sort of going to the movies, right? But these things yeah. were really sort of personal yeah. and private in a well way said. that, I mean, we talk about this all the time. Movies just sort yeah. of aren't in the same yeah. way anymore. Um, and before sense. I get into too deep into platitudes, number two was Crocodile fucking Dundee. So let's not get <laughs> yes, <it was>. overexcited <laughs> about catharsis yes. in the theater. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and number one was Top Gun, as mentioned. Yeah, mentioned <laughs> that briefly. But uh, yeah, I don't know about you. Uh, boy, I fucking hate Top Gun. I really just like <laughs> just just the dumbest flag wavy fucking bullshit movie i hate top gun and really like top gun maverick which was like the biggest I'm... surprise of my life last year was going to see that out of obligation out of professional obligation certain that it was just gonna suck eggs and being like and really admiring the fact that it was both that that it was definitely for people who love Top Gun, but also was aware that there were people like me and the ways in which it sort of slyly grappled with the considerable flaws of the original Top Gun. I'm talking too yeah. much, Ty. Where where do you where? No, where... not at all, not at all. No, we're we're kind of on the same. My feeling, um, and and again, so I was 29 when this came. Right, and I was a New Yorker. Right, and you know, politically liberal, and then the height of cynicism. Position. And, and, and but definitely positioned to not take Tom Cruise seriously sure. at all. Um, although loved him in Risky Business, mm -hmm. uh, and, and and was sort of already sort of fascinated by this. I mean, this was the period when he wasn't giving any interviews for like three years. Oh wow! So he kind of put himself into like a black box, oh, where his publicist did. Um, so there was kind of a weird mystique that was not yet a creepy culty mystique. <laughs> um, and um, but I remember thinking, hey, this movie is easy to dump on for its chowder-headed jingoism mm -hmm. but it's also just not a well-made movie right i'm sorry it's just right. not a well-written movie it's not a well-made movie you look at it today and it's just laughable and i agree top gun maverick regardless of how you feel about its politics or what passes for its politics and i wrote a kind of a pissed off piece for the newsletter it's actually still one of the best one of the most read things i've written for the newsletter just because I pulled up, I, I, because I was pissed off. Mm. Um, not so much at the movie, but at jingo, chowder-headed jingoism in movies. Um, <laughs> and that was the one that was kind of teed up. Uh, but it is an incredibly well-made movie. Yeah, It is, to my mind, it's like, almost like the platonic ideal of summer blockbuster, well-tooled, machine-tooled yeah. movies. Um, yeah. Just so much better made than the first one. It's not even funny. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I agree with you. And I say that as a, a lifelong uh, Tony Scott apologist. All right, Ty, you ready mm -hmm. to do a lightning round? Yes. 
All right, Mike is going to put five minutes on the clock. I'm going to shoot you a whole bunch of titles from 86. Uh, reply as succinctly as you'd like. Pass if you have nothing to say or didn't see it. And okay. here we go. Alex Cox's Sid and Nancy. Ooh, Gary Oldman arrives. Whatever happened to Chloe Webb? Um, God love it. The last commercial thing Alex Cox ever did before blowing his career up. Jim Jarmusch is down by law. Um, a, I was disappointed in it after um, uh, Stranger Than Paradise, uh, but I shouldn't have been. Um, almost worth forgiving Robert Roberto Benigni for um, <laughs> the, the, the Nazi movie. Um, and uh, Life is Beautiful. And uh, Tom Waits, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So yeah. Tom Waits. So yeah. yeah. Good. The, the other Dennis Hopper comeback movie of 1986, Hoosiers. Oh, I, you know, I loved that movie when it came out to me again, mm-hmm. uh, a, just a classic narrative, well-told um, comeback movie for cop for Hopper about a comeback um, for the Gene Hackman character. Um, I should see it again, see how it holds up. But I remember just really loving that movie just as a straight ahead, honest detailed, well-told narrative, you know, American sports movie. Ty, it's one of my comfort movies. I probably watch it three or four times a year. It holds up. I, I, I should do that. It's been a while. Friend of the pod, Lizzie Borden's working girls. Ah, uh, you know, I, I saw it back when it came out and I need to see it. And I actually really, I was thinking recently cause it's popped up on criterion. Mm-hmm. I got to watch that again. Um, I remember being a dumb, stupid 29 year old guy not really knowing how to pr- process it very well and so you know going right on man but um i know i i i need to confront that movie as a as a adult human being yeah i would say um, i would say uh, if, if you were watching movies for cinemax i i i can't imagine that one didn't come across <laughs> your radar at some point david well no i mean you know i was watching all sorts of stuff for yeah. cinemax including you know including some like hong kong films sure. and some pretty out there indies um but so no, I wasn't. I wasn't always just doing Spinamax stuff. <laughs> but nevertheless, um, boy, I wonder if uh, I even wrote it up. I should. I have all my old Cinemax uh, evaluations in a two black binders oh up my on my God. shelf. Oh there. wow! Yeah, uh, David Cronenberg's The Fly. Oh, uh, again, probably his commercial peak. Yep. Um, without sacrificing any of his genuinely Ooginess. fucked upness, yes. <laughs> which is um, which I think is is his sincere contribution to American cinema. Um, uh, I think Dead Ringers is probably I think the better movie, uh, and this was sort of part of that same era of mm-hmm. his. Um, props for making Jeff Goldblum a major movie star, um, and. Uh, and Gina Davis, uh, you know, yeah, it's it's. I love that movie. I, I I wonder if it's held up. Probably not. It's been a while since I've seen it, but uh, yeah, good movie. Henry, Portrait of a Serial Killer. Man, you're just pulling out the good stuff here. <laughs> one of the most ter- one of the most terrifying movies I've ever seen. That was one. I remember I did screen it for um, HBO Cinemax, and I had to stop it like halfway through and just like go pour myself a drink. That <laughs> is because um, it's it's a very realistic. It is really. Well, what is it like to hang out with a serial killer? Yeah. What what do his murders look like? Yeah. Holy shit. Um, <laughs> that is one of the most unnerving films I've ever seen. And so well-crafted. Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, speaking of well-crafted, John Woo's A Better Tomorrow. Um, I, you know, great movie. I, I don't have much of an opinion of it because I don't remember seeing it and it's been years since I've seen it. And I just remember doves flying. Um, <laughs> and... And, you know, two guys pointing guns at each other, which means that I really can't I can't weigh in on it. I, I'm just thinking of the woo clash cliche. So yes. I need to go back to the early stuff. If you've seen Gosh. two guys, if you've seen one guy with two guns, empty them both out and <laughs> drop them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's that's there you it's, go. that's you've seen there the you movie. Uh, the aforementioned Andre Tarkovsky's The Sacrifice. Uh Again, one that I had under my belt and remember. I'm enjoying it's not the right word, um, but other movies of his career stick more in my head. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of going to pass on that. By the way, speaking of Hong Kong movies, the one that I remember from that year um, is the Chui Hark movie, Peking Opera Blues. Uh-huh. Um, that is such a terrific comedy. I've always felt really bad that his career didn't take off more in America, uh, although his stuff is so purely Hong Kong that it might not translate, but Shanghai Blues, Peking Opera Blues, those are just great, great comedies. And I wish more people saw them. And Peking Opera Blues was the 1986 release. Gotcha. Um, okay, let's close it out with one more uh, foreign film of note from a real master, uh, Pedro Almodovar's Matador. Matador. Uh, that was really his first arrival on the scene. Mm -hmm. um, that was before Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown, right? Yep. Um, so again, like Spike Lee, that was like, Here's somebody new in town who is really, really fresh. Um, and that was an edgy movie mm -hmm. that had some that was, you know, had some blood to it. Uh, and so it was kind of unclear which direction this guy would be going. Can't beat that. All right. Well, now we're going to throw it to our friend. Here's W. Axel Foley with a quick PSA. Head on over to your favorite podcasting app. Give us a star, a rate, a review. Give us a written review and tell us that you love us because that's what lets people know that we're here. All right, Ty, where can people follow you on social media? So my newsletter is called Tiber's watch list. You can find it by typing in these words, these letters, Tiber's watch No ats in there. Um, and uh, it's free, but if you want to pay me, I will thank you very much. And you will get some additional content, the ability to join the uh, conversation. And it's a, really pretty great conversation going on with um the uh with my subscribers and um two or three times a week you get a newsletter in your inbox saying here's something good to watch could be in theaters could be on demand could be old could be new borrowed blue whatever uh it's fun to just you know i've been doing this for 30 years and it's fun pulling some of these movies that i've seen over the years out of my back pocket and say remember this yeah or uh, look at this or uh, you know so it's I really have fun with it, and the readers seem to have fun with it as well. Yeah. Uh, for whatever it's worth, you guys, this was one of the first things I subscribed to on Substack, and I cannot recommend it highly enough. Um, Thank you. I'm Fun City Cinema on Instagram, Jason Dash Bailey on Blue Sky and Letterboxd, where you can find <laughs> under my lists the top fives for every episode of the show. Mike, where can people follow you? you you're way better at, at it than me. Can I just say I'm also Fun City Cinema on Instagram? <laughs> I'm, I'm brainwashed lib uh brainwashed lib on twitter and fifth column films on blue sky 
And uh, again, don't forget, we are on Substack, a very good year.substack.com, where paid subscribers get bonus episodes, bonus writing, and much more. You can also hear our bonus episodes with a subscription on Apple Podcasts. Uh, Mike, before we go, what is your favorite movie of 1986? I gotta go with Caravaggio. It's uh, it's. Woo! I mean, I'm not like really that wild about bio. We've complained about biopics on here all the time, <laughs> um, but they may they. You know, it's not a movie about a guy painting. Uh, you know, it is about the 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 Italian painter Caravaggio, who I have you know I happen to really like his his paintings. But like, I I don't know. It's every single shot in the movie could be a Renaissance painting. Like mm-hmm. it's it's a good movie. Like it's not. It's you know. It's sort of about why he painted the things he painted. If you know anything about his life, there was actually way more exciting sections of his life they could have chosen to do because it's not like a you know cradle to grave type of situation. They picked a you know a section and a few relationships that are fairly well documented. Um, you know to sort of work around, but. So, like, you know, they didn't do all the annoying things that that ruin biopics. <laughs> um, it really is sort of more about what motivated him to do the the type of work that he was doing. But it just visually it's one of the most fucking incredible movies I've ever seen. And there are like whole sections where like they he's actually like posing human beings to paint them, you know, so you have this sort of, you see things that really look like these paintings. Right. But beyond that, every shot, when he goes to the bar, like it looks like a painting from a movie, you know, Mm -hmm. it just like the way that they, that they sort of approached the, um, but then there's like a part where like one one like really super rich religious dude has got like a gold calculator, like a gold like digital night like very 1986 <laughs> calculator. So like every now and then it gets a little surreal. I just it's very hard for me to explain this movie in a way that that is really sort of coherent and that's part of what makes it so fucking awesome. But also <laughs> it's just a masterclass in how to photograph um and how to photograph and sort of set in light. Uh, a movie it's just it's incredible and i don't know if i'll ever recommend another biopic but fucking caravaggio is amazing how about you okay this was a way harder year to pick than i thought it would be um and we will talk about just a lot yeah i couldn't say aliens talk about (laughs) fucking hard (laughs) we will talk on the on the after show on the bonus episode about some of the sort of just like HBO 11 year old favorites that I still watch and love from this year. But ultimately I went with true stories uh, directed by David Byrne, um, Uh, which I, which in retrospect, I believe was probably the first really indie film closest thing to like an art film that I saw at that tender age. And I only saw by accident because my second stepfather, my mother's third husband, uh, was a huge Talking Heads fan. He just loved the band like so much. And so there was a weekend where, you know, we had rented a VCR for the weekend because they didn't have one. And we went to national video and I got whatever I got. And Mom got whatever she got. And he got true stories because he was a Talking Heads fan. And so we sat down and watched it. And I just had never seen anything like it. I had never seen anything with that sort of like a singular tone, with that sort of specific quirkiness to it. I had never seen somebody in a movie who was like David Byrne is in that movie. Um, and then I've just revisited it over the years and I just find it absolutely delightful. It's so strange and so funny and the musical numbers are wonderful 
and it's inventive and it's got such a giant heart in it. And also, I just remember us watching the movie and saying, whoever this guy is who's playing the big teddy bear who wants to get married, that guy's going to be a star. And a year later, John Goodman got cast on Roseanne and we were right. Um, (laughs) I just love true stories so very, very much. Can, can I say that's really interesting because, um, and how old were you when you saw it? Uh, 12, 11 okay. or 12. So I'm 29 in New York. That movie was really divisive among Ooh. Talking Heads fans. Oh. Um, and I got into arguments with it. Um, I got into an argument, like a really almost like friendship spoiling argument with a really good friend who thought that he had just sold out um, <laughs> with that movie. Yeah. And and I said you just don't like him because he had just been when that movie came out he was on the cover of um, Time magazine, yeah. Rock's Renaissance Man, yeah. and you know so then that immediately made him uncool for anybody below 14th Street. Wow. Um, so um, and I and I'm, I'm I'm neutral on the movie. I I, I like it. I'm I don't I don't really I don't feel one way or the other about it. Um, but it was I remember people were pissed. Some people were wow. pissed at it. Yeah, but I'm delighted that you're delighted in it and that you go back to it. I do. Because, you know, movies speak to different people different ways. And if that was your entry gate, you know, that was your your entry drug. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, great. Thank you again for coming on the show, Ty. Thank you, Jason, for having me on the show. And thank you, Michael. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Jason. And thank you for listening. It was a very